This is Radioactive, an environmental and social justice news journal for January 23rd, 2020. This is Meredith DiFrancesco. Today we hear from Penobscot Nation Chief Kirk Francis on current changes proposed for the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Implementing Act. On January 14th, the Maine Legislature's Judiciary Committee voted unanimously to accept the recommendations of the Task Force on Changes to the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Implementing Act. For almost 40 years after the settlement of the Maine Indian land claims, the Wabanaki tribes in Maine struggle with oppressive state interpretations of jurisdictional issues folded into the Settlement Act, which has put the tribes in a category separate from other federally recognized tribes throughout the country in regards to their sovereignty and the applicability of federal legislation. The charge of the task force has been to review the 1980 Settlement Implementing Act and make recommendations for changes through legislation. The task force has been comprised of the chiefs of the Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, Mi'kmaq, and Maliseet tribes, two main senators, three main representatives, an ex officio representation from the governor's office, Maine Attorney General's office, and the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. The task force met from July through December and drew up a report with proposed changes in a number of areas from civil and criminal jurisdiction to natural resources, with the aim of restoring the rights of tribes in Maine in concert with other federally recognized tribes throughout the country. The Judiciary Committee is in process of drawing up proposed legislation following the committee's recommendations and will hold a public hearing in mid-February. Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation spoke before the Judiciary Committee on some of the history of the establishment of the 1980 Settlement Act and the work of the task force. Chief Francis has served as the chief of the Penobscot Nation since 2006, the longest-serving chief since the electoral system began in 1850. He also serves as president of the United Southern and Eastern Tribes, USET, and chairs the National Congress of American Indians Natural Resources Committee. I want to thank you for um, having me, first of all, today. And before we present the recommendations of the task force, I want to share with you some of the views of the tribal nations who participated in this process. Additionally, I ask that this written statement um, from Chief Peter Paul from the Rustic Band of Micmacs also be given, you, given to you today. Um, for the sake of time, we won't read that, but we will provide it uh, for the committee. Um, the task force was a creation of the legislature, as we all know, through a joint order last spring. And to be honest, it was something, uh, not something that any of the tribes asked for. And it was not an effort that I had a whole lot of faith in at first, to be honest. Um, I've been through a lot of these uh, different uh, efforts with the tribal state work group, etc. cetera. So, um, so we're always looking at this uh, with a little less than optimism. but. To be honest, it was um, there were plenty of times in the past where tribes had asked for this type of dialogue uh, with the state to fix what we viewed uh, the Settlement Act as a failed experiment that left the tribal nations of Maine stagnant in the past, with limited opportunities to achieve self-sufficiency in an archaic a restriction on tribal sovereignty that few other tribes in the country endure. 
Essentially, we view the Settlement Act as a legislative effort to terminate us as governments. So I did not have much hope or faith in the task force, as I mentioned. In April of 2019, House Speaker Gideon and Senate President Jackson hosted a meeting with tribal leaders and asked us to provide them with a letter to set out our goals for this process to work. Over the course of several days, the tribal leaders met to prepare our response. By letter dated May 9, 2019, we wrote to Speaker Gideon and President Jackson and stated the following. The leadership of the tribes have a consensus that for this process to work, there must be a commitment to accomplish the following as to all tribes. Amendments to establish that the laws of the state shall not apply to the tribes on their respective lands, except as agreed to by the state and the tribes, or as provided by federal law. Amendments to confirm that the tribes shall exercise and enjoy the same rights, powers, privileges, and immunities as other federally recognized Indian tribes, except as agreed by the state and the tribes. And amendments to confirm that acts of Congress intended to benefit, to benefit federally recognized Indian tribes in general apply to the tribes and their lands, except as agreed to by the state and the tribes. You will notice that a fundamental theme of our May letter was the requirement that any amendments to the Settlement Act must be agreed to by the state and the tribes. The tribes have long had a belief that they didn't agree to a lot of things that were in the original Settlement Act. We agreed to settle the land claims. This is not in question. But there remain significant questions about whether the Penobscot people and citizens of the other tribal nations fully understood or agreed to the terms of the settlement beyond the land claims. Worse, changes were made in both the state and federal settlement acts prior to passage and were not vetted or approved by tribal citizens. These settlements were essentially forced upon us when the state legislature passed its Implement Act and the federal Congress subsequently ratified the settlement and the state Implement Act. I provide you this background so that you understand that, from our perspective, the restrictions upon our inherent sovereign rights that are contained in the federal and state settlement acts were suspect to begin with. And the only reason why the restrictions in the State Implement Act are valid is because the Federal Congress ratified them over objections of many Penobscot people and the people of the other main tribes. Some of our initial concerns and suspicions with the task force were alleviated, though, in June of last year, when the legislature passed a joint resolution to support the development of mutually beneficial solutions to conflicts arising from the interpretation of an act to implement the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement and the Federal Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act of 1980. That has to be the longest bill title ever. <laughs> In that resolution, the legislature resolved as follows. To recognize that the Maine tribes should enjoy the same rights, privileges, powers, and immunities as other federally recognized Indian tribes within the United States and to support a collaborative process to develop amendments to an act to implement the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement to accomplish that goal. We appreciated the subsequent resolution of the state legislature and decided to participate in the task force. We were also pleased with the individuals and leadership of the task force who clearly spent the extra time needed to better understand the national scheme of federal Indian law and the inequities that apply to the tribal nations of Maine. I think um, most of the task force members even went and bought their own American Indian law handbooks and, um, and uh, we got through some pretty complicated subject matter um, and appreciate their attention to that. 
So in terms of the past history, so that's kind of how we got to the task force. And in terms of the past history, um, you know, we thought it was really important right from uh, day one to really correct a lot of misunderstandings that are out there. And the initial meetings of the task force really focused on setting the record straight on certain historical facts that are often ignored or misunderstood. So I would like to do that today for you, as many of you may not have listened to the recordings of the task force meetings. First, the inherent sovereign rights of the tribal nations in Maine do not derive from the 1980 Settlement Act. We are indigenous nations who have lived in our homelands since time immemorial. Our inherent sovereignty predates the United States Constitution and the formation of Maine. Beyond the land claims, the 1980 Settlement Act is a restriction on our inherent authorities. And second, this 1980 Settlement Act could never go into effect without the approval of the United States Congress, which again evidences the federal, stat, um, this, the federal condition that the tribes were under pre-1980. The Supreme Court long ago established that states generally have no authority over tribal nations in their lands, and the only way they can get that authority is with an express grant from Congress. Third, our inherent sovereign rights and rights to our lands were affirmed by the federal courts prior to the Settlement Act. Our ancestors fought in the American Revolutionary War under the promise that, upon the formation of the United States, the tribe would be protected in the occupation of their aboriginal homelands by the new federal government. After the war, that promise was never honored. Our lands and resources were encroached upon, and when faced with destitution, we agreed to cede most of our lands for next to nothing to Massachusetts and later to Maine. These massive land sessions were in violation of federal law, the 1790 Non-Intercourse uh, non Act, which rendered void any land sessions by tribes not approved by the federal government. It was not until the early 1970s that the tribes discovered these violations and asked the United States to fulfill its promise and sue Maine to recover these lands. In 1975, in a case of Joint Tribal Council of the Passamaquoddy Tribe versus Secretary of Interior Morton, U.S. District Court Judge Edward Janot confirmed that the United States owed a trust responsibility to the tribes and could proceed with filing land claims against the state of Maine. The United States filed land claims in federal court against Maine soon after. These claims put a cloud over a title of two-thirds of the state of Maine. You are listening to Radioactive on WERU Community Radio. On January 14th, the Maine Legislature's Judiciary Committee voted unanimously to accept the recommendations of the Task Force on Changes to the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Implementing Act. The task force recommendations cover a number of areas from civil and criminal jurisdiction to natural resources to restore the sovereign rights of tribes in Maine in concert with other federally recognized tribes throughout the country. Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation spoke before the Judiciary Committee. The committee will hold a public hearing on the proposed legislation in mid-February. The late 1970s brought significant victories for the tribal nations, confirming us sovereignty and undermining the power that Maine had presumed to wield over us. In Bottomley versus Passamaquoddy tribe, the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that the Passamaquoddy tribe re retained its inherent sovereign powers. In that case, about sovereign immunity from suit. In State versus Jane, uh, Dana, 
the Maine Supreme Court held that the Passamaquoddy Reservation constituted, constituted Indian country and as a result, criminal jurisdiction over an alleged arson committed on the reservation rested exclusively with the United States, not Maine. The Bottomley and Dana decisions had implications for all Maine tribes, not just the Passamaquoddy tribe, essentially confirming that Maine's presumed power no longer existed, that the Maine tribes enjoyed the inherent sovereign powers that all other tribal nations possess. So everyone understood going into the settlement the main tribes had the full status of tribal nations as in all other parts of the country. This is evidence upon the introducing of the Maine Implement Act to the legislature where Senator Samuel Collins Jr., the co-sponsor of the act, explained, the premise of this bill and the entire settlement agreement is that the Indians are federal Indians. This means that the Indians and their lands are within the exclusive jurisdiction of the federal government and its Indian laws. Under this premise, the state has no jurisdiction at all. In summary, this was the situation that existed immediately <clears throat> prior to the Settlement Act's passing into law. So there was no authority derived from the Settlement Act to the tribes of Maine that had pre-existed the settlement. The United States had sued Maine on our behalf to recover nearly two-thirds of the landmass of the state and both the federal and state courts recognized that within our Aboriginal homelands, we were free from state authority, just like other tribal nations, and that we could exercise the inherent sovereign powers similar to other tribal nations in the country. So now that's the history uh, leading up to the Settlement Act and, um, and how the tribes were viewed and the rights we had back then. And, then, and we spent a lot of time in the task force talking about that, because I think that's a... Um, a big misunderstanding when we talk about the Settlement Act. I think people think um, the tribes of Maine were kind of created in 1980, and, and we all know there's a long history before that, and there's been a lot of court cases that have affirmed the tribe's views before this act. So now we get to the Settlement Act era, and I promise I'm getting there, um, and the failures of the Settlement Act. You know, the restrictions on our inherent sovereign authorities contained in the Settlement Act fail for two principal reasons. First, we cannot progress like other tribal nations under federal law, and that undermines our dignity as sovereign tribal governments, but also our ability to provide services to our people, protect those who live and work on our lands, and our ability to create an economy that benefits our community and the nearby communities. Second, uncertainties and ambiguities contained in the Settlement Act have led to costly litigation and continuing conflicts between the tribes and the state and at times with the state and certain corporations that are polluting our waterways that often are aligned against us. Additionally, provisions in the Settlement Act exclude us from federal laws that benefit every other tribal nation in the country. Here are some examples of the litigation and inequities caused by the Settlement Act. We have a federal and state court litigation on whether the Penobscot Nation and the Passamaquoddy Tribe are subject to the Maine Freedom of Information Act such that we must allow corporations that, again, are discharging pollutants into tribal waters to enter tribal offices and access information about the efforts to protect ourselves. That condition exists nowhere else. <laughs> Federal court litigation involving EPA, Maine, and corporations on whether Congress granted Maine authority to issue permits for pollution discharges into tribal waters under the Clean Water Act. Tribes often have the authority to do that uh, under the Clean Water Act as a treatment of state. 
state and federal court litigation over whether the tribes have authority to engage in gaming to generate badly needed revenues to support our tribal governmental services. Again, um, people think the right of tribes to conduct gaming is a result of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Um, that is actually not a beneficial act to tribes. That's a restrictive act to tribes. Um, tribes have a right to game because the Supreme Court ruled that it's an inherent right of tribes to conduct that activity. Cop launch. The Indian Gaming Regulatory Act is Congress's attempt to restrict that right. So no less than three appeals to the Maine Supreme Court to determine whether a tribal member's trespass claim against the Tribal Housing Authority arising on the Passamaquoddy Reservation is within the sole jurisdiction of the Passamaquoddy Tribal Court. So here you have a trespass on reservation in that community with a court of jurisdiction. Again, that condition does not exist anywhere else. Exclusion from the Federal Violence Against Women Act so that we were unable to prosecute domestic violence crimes committed by non-Indians on our land. Additionally, exclusion from this federal law, I give a Penobscot example, and I'm sure um, most all the tribes sitting in here, has deprived the Penobscot Nation of several million dollars since 2014 in funding that would have expanded the capacity of our tribal court, law enforcement, and victim services. Exclusion from the Federal Stafford Act, we were the only tribe in America formally excluded from this act on the United States Senate floor, which would have allowed us to declare emergencies on our land to simply seek assistance from the federal government. Failing to receive any financial assistance um, from the state to help us to address the opioid abuse occurring within our communities, we actually had to lobby Congress for a tribal set-aside, um, had some success with that, you know, and to this day, we still not, do not receive any um, state dollars uh, within, at least speaking for my tribal community, and I would dare say uh, very similar for everyone else. We are about 98 to 99% federally funded. And this really leads to a point of typically when governments exercise authority over Indian tribes, like the federal government, uh, who has plenary authority, there's also a trust fiduciary responsibility with that, which includes protecting tribes and their rights, as well as funding. You are listening to Radioactive on WERU Community Radio. On January 14th, the Maine Legislature's Judiciary Committee voted unanimously to accept the recommendations of the Task Force on Changes to the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Implementing Act. The task force recommendations cover a number of areas from civil and criminal jurisdiction to natural resources to restore the sovereign rights of tribes in Maine in concert with other federally recognized tribes throughout the country. Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation spoke before the Judiciary Committee. The committee will hold a public hearing on the proposed legislation in mid-February. So it has been 40 years since the Settlement Act was enacted into law, and upon review, it is clear that the restrictions contained in the act that subject the tribal nations to state law and try to make us wards of the state have been an utter failure. And I think we can all agree um, we all get to its failure in a different way, in a different thought process, I think, but I don't think anyone can call it a success. While other Indian tribes throughout the country can show significant progress in developing infrastructure, creating economies, and expanding on government services since 1980, here in Maine, we remain stagnant, with limited access to federal resources and archaic restrictions on our ability 
as governments to build foundations that will allow us to someday become self-sufficient. If you look at other tribal nations throughout the country, you will see that when tribal nations thrive, so do the surrounding non-Indian communities. When there are good relationships between states, state governments and tribal governments, they are able to work together and find and develop mutually beneficial opportunities. The tribal nations in Maine are very different from corporations that come into the state and leave when a profit is no longer easy to obtain. We are the original inhabitants of, of this place. We care about this state and these lands are far more than anyone else. Our ancestors are buried here. We will be buried here and our children and grandchildren will. Yet our ability to help this state, our people and the people of Maine have been severely limited for the past four decades. We are pleased with the results of the task force and commend Senator Carpenter and Representative Bailey for their leadership of it. The recommendations being presented today are not perfect, but they will build a foundation on which we can begin to work the work that should have been started 40 years ago. We look forward to the Joint Standing Committee reporting the recommendations out and the legislature enacting them into law. I again want to thank you for allowing me a little more time than you're used to here. Um, this is a very complicated subject, um, a very serious subject, and one that has tremendous uh, the ability to, and potential to have tremendous impacts on some highly disadvantaged people and um, some very proud governments. And um, being for over 40 years from self-determination being passed, and, and uh, the tribes have worked really hard um, on their nation building, self-governing, on self-determination, building towards self-sufficiency. So thank you all. Thank you, Chief Francis. Again, that was Penobscot Nation Chief Kirk Francis. The other tribal chiefs gave comments at the end of the task force presentation. Chief Clarissa Sabatis of the Holton Band of Maliseets and Vice Chief Maggie Dana of the Passamaquoddy Tribe at Sapayak. Chief Clarissa Sabatis of the Holton Band of Maliseets. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to Chief Francis for representing all of us today and um, all of our perspectives. Um, I also wanted to say thank you to this group and, and to everyone on the task force. Uh, I know it was a large commitment and there was a steep learning curve, <laughs> um, but I do appreciate all of the hard work that's gone on to this. And, um, you know, I think I was much like Chief Francis and... <clears throat> um, very cautiously optimistic at the start of this, but moving moving through the process, you know, I really um, I have a lot more confidence in what what we've done and what could potentially happen from this. So, um, I I uh, I hope that you all are able to step outside of of where you are and, and look at things from our perspective as well while you're making your decisions um, throughout this process. Um, this is something that we've all lived with for a long time. I know that's hard to imagine if, if you're not living it. Vice Chief Maggie Dana of the Passamaquoddy Tribe at Zabayak. I wasn't really prepared to speak today. I uh, just came to listen. Um, I, like other chiefs, uh, come into this feeling, you know, hesitant. So, you know, just through the whole process, it was... Uh, Building, building that up. Um, from what I understand is the, you know, Settlement Act is supposed to be a living document, and it's been stagnant, you know, for 40 years. 
So, you know, to me, in my perspective, this is just a, you know, the start, the beginning of, you know, we've tried and tried over the years, but to build that relationship with the tribe, I mean, the, the state, sorry, tribe and state, nation to nation building. Um, and it's not, you know, we're not here for you to grant us rights. It's, you know, restoring our rights. So we hope that people, you know, get that as well. So thank everybody for, you know, being here and we look forward to working with you. Again, on January 14th, the Maine Legislature's Judiciary Committee voted unanimously to accept the recommendations of the Task Force on Changes to the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Implementing Act. The Judiciary Committee will hold a public hearing on legislation reflecting the recommendations of the task force in mid-February. For video and transcripts of task force meetings, go to sunlightmediacollective.org. Additional resources can be found at the Maine Legislature's website. Search Maine Indian Claims Task Force. Today's audio was recorded by Josh Woodbury with the Sunlight Media Collective. On November 19, 2019, the town of Bar Harbor passed a resolution declaring a climate emergency, one of four towns throughout the state of Maine, including Portland, South Portland, and Brunswick. This past Tuesday, the Bar Harbor Town Council passed a measure creating a task force on climate emergency with the mission of creating recommendations to end community-wide greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Tune in next week on WERU for a special call-in on climate emergency. That's Thursday, January 30th, from 4 to 5, the hour before the regularly scheduled radioactive program. We'll have representatives of students and other youth working on local climate emergency efforts. Again, that's Thursday, January 30th, 4 to 5 p.m. We'll also hear a report back from the Maine Climate Council meeting on January 29th. One of our guests will be Anya Wright, a College of the Atlantic student, the youth representative on the Maine Climate Council. And you've been listening to Radioactive on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM. You can listen to archives of this and other locally produced public affairs programming at WERU.org. Today's program was produced in concert with Sunlight Media Collective at sunlightmediacollective.org. Thank you for listening and acting.